Here's a thought then for the younger ones among us. Do you know what a witness is? Is that a word you're familiar with? A witness? Um, you witness, you're like giving up something. Like yeah. if you have a big secret, you can witness the secret. <coughs> is that Maybe? Yeah. When, uh, one way of thinking about a witness is if you see something happen and then you're able to tell about it later. So sometimes it's uh, helpful if you're a witness um, and maybe you see a car accident and then when the police come and they're trying to figure out who did what wrong, you can say, well, I'm a witness, I saw what happened. And so the blue car went through the red light and hit the white car. And so then you become a witness to what you've seen and then sometimes we have what's called a character witness. If somebody needs a word about somebody else, right? Do you know this person and what's this person like? And so you can say, well, I've known this person for 20 years or for five years or for two years. And this is what I've noticed about that person and why I would trust that person in this kind of job or whatever it is that they need a character witness for. Sometimes, and I don't know if, uh, if you know this term, a witness stand or a witness box. Sometimes if there's a dispute among people and it gets so bad that they have to go to court and let a judge determine what the whole story is, you might be called to be a witness and take the witness stand. You sit next to the judge and then you have attorneys ask you questions about what you have seen or what you know about that person. And I'm curious, let's see, do you know who the attorneys are in our congregation? The attorney is the person that hits the thing. The judge. Right, Elizabeth Thompson. <laughs> Right. So we have Elizabeth Thompson, we have uh, Emily Reuter, Annabelle, uh, Annabelle's mother. Uh, maybe they can give us a, a field trip someday. We could sit inside of a courtroom and we could sit in the witness stand or the witness box. Oh, I think an attorney is who um, picks which one gets like, which one is guilty and which one is not. Right, right. So <clears throat> we could have some fun and we could learn a lot if we did that. <clears throat> but now I'm thinking about today's gospel lesson. We have a story about John the Baptist, and he was a character witness, more or less, for Jesus. And he said, I know this Jesus. Did you know that Jesus and John were actually cousins to each other? So John knew Jesus, and John knew that Jesus was not an ordinary person, that Jesus was extraordinary. And he was beginning to tell people about Jesus so that they would listen for him and watch and wait for him. It was a wonderful message today that he became this witness of Jesus.
said would be the light of the world. And he helped people get to know a little bit more about Jesus. And then I'm wondering <clears throat> in our own lives, what can we do to help people get to know Jesus a little better? They can believe in Jesus. They can go to church. So, yeah, good. Good, good. Anything else you can think of? They can wait until Christmas and see if Jesus comes. Very good. I think, I think that's a good question, even for the older ones among us to be thinking about this week. How can we, too, be a witness to somebody that we know, someone who's a part of our life and someone that we love very much and someone that we know loves us? How can we be a good witness in the days ahead for Jesus, who is the light of the world? So, quick prayer, gracious God, <clears throat> comes, you see it from everywhere, and we know that God will be with us no matter where we are or how dark it might be in our world. And we ask that you would help us open our eyes for the coming of Jesus so that we're ready for him when he comes but also we pray that you would help us be a good witness for this wonderful light and love of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think it's fair to say that most of us attend worship because we're looking to put a handle on the infinite. Even though we know we can never really capture God, it's comforting to go someplace where we at least have the opportunity to talk to God or to begin to find ways to think about how God might be present and active in our lives and in our world. It makes us feel a little less lost in the universe. It is comforting to have songs and rituals that we know. And even if they never fully answer our questions, and even if they never solve the mystery of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, it feels good. Jesus sometimes is a mystery we're never fully going to be able to comprehend the depth of God's love for us and how God sent Jesus into our world to change it upside down. The privilege, though, of gathering for worship has always involved some risks. And I'm not just thinking about gathering in person during a pandemic, which, of course, now we're learning how to do in a new way. Or I'm not only thinking about sometimes the sermons are pretty bad and you have to endure them for 15 or 20 minutes. It's nothing like that. I'm thinking instead about the danger of religion itself. And by that I mean the system invented by and defended by human beings in their efforts to pigeonhole God. 
just to make sure that I was on solid ground with this, I looked up the word religion in a concordance and I noticed that it was used only three times in all of scripture. It's used once in the book of Acts by Paul, who is talking about his past as a Pharisee. And it's used twice in the letter of James, where James defines religion as caring for orphans and widows in their distress. That's the only religion there is in the Bible. Jesus never uses the word at all, perhaps because he found organized religion rather unfriendly. The first time he preached in his home synagogue, do you remember what happened? The entire congregation rose up in wrath and they tried to throw him off of a cliff outside of town. The clergy in Jerusalem had the same reaction to him. Every time he showed up in the temple, they stood around in clumps trying to figure out how to either trap him in his own words or how to get rid of him. And at least once, Jesus got so mad about what was happening in God's house that he turned all of the furniture upside down. Jesus was not big on the concept of religion, as far as I can tell. He seemed to see it as something people did instead of truly worshiping God and being in the presence of God. When people could no longer stand surrendering themselves to a love that would give them no details, make them no deals, or cut them no slack, they invented a religion that would do all of those things for them, and people then began to worship that religion instead. They spent their prayer time making up rules and definitions, and they spent their orphan and widow time keeping their records up to date. And it wore Jesus out because they did not know when to stop. It might have been all right if they had limited their use of their organizational skills to each other, but they didn't. They tried to organize God, too, so that their religion turned into a blindfold that kept them from seeing the God who came to them sideways, well past the limits of their expectations, and as a complete surprise. So now back to John. John draws crowds in the wilderness, which is how he became uh, known to the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Only they don't know who he is or what to make of him. He doesn't dress or act or sound like anyone else that they've ever encountered before. He certainly doesn't dress or act or sound like them. So they send a delegation of clergy out to him to find out who he is. They are the professional appraisers, kind of like our candidacy committees maybe, well equipped, they think, to find out where John has gotten the authority to act the way he is acting. Who are you? They ask him. And you can almost see them standing there with their iPhones, 
texting their ideas about questions to ask John on Facebook. Orthodox or reformed, a fundamentalist, a charismatic, a liberal or a traditionalist, a Pentecostalist. Is he high church or low church? Does he believe in predestination, transubstantiation, dispensationalism? Where does he stand on believers' baptism, on the ordination of women, on the use of incense and same-sex marriage? They want details, but John is not willing to cooperate. I am not the Messiah, he says which is a pretty interesting answer since it doesn't really answer the question that they asked him. But John is up to something here, which is all but lost on his visitors. I am not, John starts out with them, and that's how the whole conversation goes. It's denial after denial. What then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you a prophet? No. It's terribly frustrating for them. They have a religious identification box with a round hole and a square hole and a triangular hole in it, but John would not fit into any of them. He matter-of-factly dismisses all of their religious categories, but it does not take them long to catch on to his tricks. Whatever they suggest, he's going to say no, so rather they invite him to categorize himself. Who are you? They try again. Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourselves? But John still will not say anything about himself. He's kind of like a Roger Hargraves children's book character. We'll call him Mr. Not Not Know. The man with no face, no name, no identity, except for the sounds that he makes. He says at last, I am the voice, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It is the only claim that he will make about himself. John is a honking horn, a crowing rooster, a jangling alarm clock. He's not the main event. He is the wake-up call for the main event. But as uncooperative as he's being with his visitors, he's telling them something absolutely crucial about the one coming after him. If they think that John is hard to peg, just wait until they meet the light. The light will not match any of their descriptions or fit into any of their boxes either. The light will not obey their rules, will not honor their systems, because if the light did that, then it wouldn't be light. He would be something much smaller and tamer, like a pocket-sized flashlight, maybe something that people could turn off and turn on when they needed it or wanted it. By refusing every title the religious authorities try to pin on him, John turns out to be a very good witness of the light. Neither he nor the one coming after him will ever fit into anyone's pocket like that. 
John is the unclassifiable witness to the undefinable Lord, who will be as slippery as greased lightning, as elusive as a moonbeam, as hot to handle as the sun itself. No system will be big enough or fast enough to contain him, John warns his visitors. So they might as well give up here and now. Among you stands one whom you do not know, John tells those who are supposed to know everything there is to know about God. And it is a wonder that they do not have him arrested right there on the spot. But they can't excommunicate him because he doesn't belong to any of the groups that they can throw him out of. He lives in the wilderness, far from the temple. He operates outside their boundaries. He's that Mr. Not-Not-Know who is already emptying himself out to make straight the way of the Lord. What John does not tell his visitors is that he doesn't even know all the details about whom he is waiting for either. But that's the point. Yes, I mean, he knows his cousin Jesus. They grew up together. But his job is not to define Jesus. His job is simply to prepare the way for him. If he began to speak about Jesus, he might miss, and everyone else around him might miss the one who comes to us sideways, from way out past the limits of our own expectations. John does not know details, nor do we. It's enough to trust God to open our hearts when the time comes. It's enough to trust the light to be the light enough to see. I heard an interview yesterday with Alanis Morissette. Remember her? Songwriter, musician, lovely, wonderful spirit and soul. And she was explaining how when she sits down to write a song, she doesn't know the outcome. She might start with a simple chord in her head or she might start with one small phrase, and then it just grows and grows and becomes something beautiful and wonderful. It's not always an easy process. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but it's a process. We are given this passage from the Gospels on the third Sunday of Advent because we still need John's testimony to the light. While we wait for the baby's cry, while we wait a little longer to put a handle on the infinite, for the earth to turn toward the sun again, we can use John's reminder that none of us ever knows exactly whom we're waiting for or how this Jesus is going to live in us and use us in our ministry to others either. We don't know, and for that, we are not to be ashamed. It is a good thing, not a bad thing, to surrender ourselves to the love that we cannot predict or control, especially during this season when we look forward to holding this Jesus in our arms. Jesus will allow us to do that. 
but only on the condition that we understand that we can never fully possess him entirely. In the end, it is Jesus who puts his arms around us. No religion can contain him, no church can box him in, but oh, can we worship him? Can we worship and adore him until the light of God is all that we see? Amen. <laughs>